Ahoy! It is your boy, and today is Sunday, November 12th, and I have no brain. I've spent most of the last few days chipping away at this thesis I've been talking about, and I'm really happy to say that I'm about at the halfway point of the first draft, which means about 20 pages. The final paper has to be about 40 pages. At the rate it's going, though, I really feel like that last stretch is going to be hard. <laughs> Not that there isn't material to generate for it, but, um, you know, it's just right now a lot of what I'm doing is just, um, what's the word? Not recapitulating. What's the word? I don't know. Enumerating? I can't think of words today. The point is, is I'm just kind of extolling research and re reiterating, I think is the word I was looking for. I'm reiterating things that I've researched, rephrasing things, and... Um, sharing a little bit of my own thoughts and or interpretation and reading on stuff. But um, I thought that was going to be the easy part. And I have to say, I don't know when I probably announced that I started working on things. But it's... Uh, actually, I think when I announced that I was kind of working on things, I was probably just doing more reading and research. But I started writing maybe about two and a half weeks ago. So the, the goal is to hopefully have... Excuse me. The goal is to hopefully have the first draft done by the end of the month, which... Actually, it kind of has to happen that way, if I'm being honest. And that will give me uh, two weeks to uh, revise and rewrite things. And the good thing about going to Berkeley, actually, and I don't, I don't, maybe this is true of other colleges, I have no idea. It feels exceptional, and I'm happy to have it, but we also have what's called Dead Week, which is basically the week before finals. There's no classes, and um, the way it happens to work out, I, I've, I've, I've really been, you know, some teachers are really big about finals. It really feels like uh, a capstone to the course. But I've also found that some teachers really don't care about that. What they really want to do is, I think they probably surmise that if they can kind of wrap things up before, uh, you know, essentially not have a final for the class, that they basically get to get out two weeks early, right? They neither have to be around for dead week necessarily, or be around for finals week, or maybe they just use that dead week kind of grading the tests or the papers that they have you turn in while everybody else is about to go into hibernation and quote study um, for the week leading up to finals. Um, and it's actually kind of funny, like living in Berkeley, you know, I know UC Berkeley has a reputation for being a very good school and uh, not that it's not, I suppose. Um, I mean, I don't know. We've talked about this, right? Like I'm one of these people who, you know, if b b before going to Berkeley, if you had told me that, hey, you're going to go to Berkeley, I would have been very confident that that would have somehow validated something that I wished to be true about myself in terms of my intelligence or my capability, and that even though prior to that acceptance, I would have not been confident about those aspects of myself, that somehow um, getting accepted into Berkeley would have vitiated my self-doubt or something like that. Well, Lo and behold, maybe this is part and parcel of life in general, but you kind of show up and the living experience is very different from what you imagine. And it's not that there aren't smart people at Berkeley and that, you know, and I encounter smart people on a regular basis, but, you know, I, I feel like people are probably pretty average for the most part. And, um, but what I will say is that at least in other parts of the country that I've lived, people are a lot more studious generally at Berkeley. Meaning when I was living in Arizona, you know, uh, U of A is a big school in Tucson. I don't know that you would necessarily call Tucson a college town. Um, I mean, people think Tucson is small, but I think when I left, even the entire metropolitan area was about a million people. It's probably bigger than that now. So, I, and I don't know what the student body of U of A is, but I, I don't think it's as big as uh, UC Berkeley, which is about 36,000 or something like that. Um so anyway, the point I'm trying to make is culturally, I think U of A is big in Tucson, but I don't think it's necessarily a college town. And yet near campus, no matter, as long as the bars are open, there's something going on. Meaning whether it's finals week or a holiday, there's enough locals and people in town where the bar scene and the party scene is always jumping off. Whereas as in Berkeley, that really doesn't exist. I mean, there are bars and I'm sure they get quasi crowded on the weekend. But when I first moved to Berkeley, I was working in bars right near college campus. And inevitably, when Dead Week came around, or when finals came around, there was really no business. And I was I was really surprised at that when I first moved out here. Um, I, I mean, when I moved out here, it had nothing to do with UC Berkeley. And so I wasn't even really aware of Berkeley as like a, um, you know, I just had no 
reference. I, I yeah, I, I just didn't know anything about the institution, let alone that it was considered a good school. And so that was kind of a, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, man. My brain's shorting out today. The point is, is that I didn't know, and I was surprised that uh, when things got really dead. Um, yeah, I was like, wow, these uh, Berkeley kids really do um, know how to study or something like that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, what else? I feel like one of those stand-up comedians who's kind of working out material, and they have the sort of open notebook out on the bar stool that's next to them, and they're sort of trying out jokes, and when they run out of things to say, they always go, uh, what else? And uh, turn to the notebook, except... If you know how we do things here, there is no notebook. I've actually started to feel, um, I'm reaching this point in the semester. Uh, basically, I have this friend who's currently in Taiwan. Uh, he and I went to Middlebury together. And uh, he's in Taiwan for nine months on some research scholarship. And uh, luckily, uh, he'll actually be there for maybe only a month when I finally get there. But we'll have some uh, some time to see each other in Taiwan. But I remember uh, he and I will sort of check in with each other intermittently. And I'm pretty sure at the end of last semester, about this time in the semester, meaning there was just a couple weeks left, I remember FaceTiming with him or something like that. And I looked god-awful. I mean, I probably had like a couple weeks worth of stubble, uh, sleep deprived, and, uh, you know, I just, I feel like I'm sort of back in the same place. I always feel like, you know, whether it's winter break or especially over last summer, I have this like restorative period where I kind of get things going. And I'm, but when the semester starts, I'm basically like this wound up, like waddling duck toy that just sort of gets going, and at first it's like quack, 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 and I'm sort of pedal to the metal, and I'm moving pretty good. But as that mechanism sort of winds down, it starts to get, you know, is lugubrious the right word here? But yeah, it just gets, uh, it just gets very, very, um, yeah, very sad. And uh, yeah, I just don't feel good. I don't feel good on my body. I don't feel healthy. I don't feel sick, necessarily. But, uh, yeah, I just feel, like, sleep-deprived, and I look in the mirror, and I just look tired all the time. I mean, this will tell you something. Um, I have lived where I live in this neighborhood for about 14 years, maybe a little bit more than that. And I know everybody in the neighborhood for the most part, not by name necessarily. But, I mean, if you've been living here for any amount of time, we've probably seen each other. And there's a, there's a you know, I want to call her a homeless woman, although I think she goes in and out of the various states of housing, if I'm being honest. But... She spends most of her time on the street, I'll put it that way. And she and I know each other very well. We know each other by name. And uh, for some reason, we're very endeared to each other. I've always been very endeared to this person. And uh, they just kind of have a, a spirit and a personality that I've always kind of taken notice of. And so whenever we see each other, we talk. If they need something and I happen to have some cash, I'm happy to give it to them. Although uh, maybe one thing I've always appreciated about her too is, you know, I, of course, on some level... I think she sees me as a resource that she has to use. It's nothing that says nothing bad about her. That's just the circumstances uh, that she's living in, right? She, her needs are very, very high, and she happens to encounter me at times where she's in need. And if I have something to give her, you know, she she asks me for some help, and that's totally fine. But sometimes she'll also tell me like she's she's set, she's good. Like uh, the other night, and this is where this is the only reason I bring this up. I was going to the corner store. And uh, I see her kind of lounging in this. I don't know where she gets it, but she she always has like different baubles or things with her. She's sitting in a like a folding chair, and she has this radio like set up on the sort of I don't know this kind of concrete ledge right next to her. And she's like listening to some to some type of music. And I've never seen her with a radio before. And I'm like, what's this? And she's like, oh, it's my grandfather's radio. And she's like, oh, it's from 1924. And I was like, that's very specific. First of all, but also I'm looking at this thing, and I have no idea what a radio from 1924 looks like i mean it looks plastic to me and i know plastic's been around for a minute but like were radios made out of plastic in 1924 and how big were they i mean i'm picturing sort of like uh when i picture like 1924 radios i'm picturing like the family around this piece of furniture you know i, I it, is it really possible that it was this battery power operated thing i don't know it, it seems impossible it, it, things don't seem to be coming together for me but uh, i also don't really care at the end of the day 
But she's sitting there eating like crackers and cheese or something. She's just kind of lounging and she has a smile on her face. And, and she's just telling me, she's like, I'm good. I got everything I need. And I'm like, oh, well, that's great. But uh, the thing that was telling, too, is she looks at me and she's like, hey, you, you look tired. Like, you haven't been sleeping. And I was like, yeah, you're probably right. So it just goes to show you when the uh, transient people in the neighborhood are telling you that you look tired. Let's just say that things are, you know, it's time to, it's time for a siesta. I'll put it that way. Um, I also, um, I don't know why, I don't know, I feel uncomfortable talking about this kind of stuff, but I've actually been doing, (laughs) well, I don't know how to really enter this topic of conversation. I'll just say that I bought myself a graduation gift and it's another firearm. And if you've listened to this personal journal for some time, uh, you may remember that some years ago I got my first firearm, which was a Ruger single six which if you Google image it or search it up online, it looks uh, like a Colt single action army, which is the kind of old Western style cowboy revolvers, uh, very famous in Westerns and stuff. And if you don't know a lot about firearms, you may look at that and say, well, it looks like any other gun to me. Especially if you don't know anything about calibers, like, you know, cartridge caliber, then uh, you won't really understand that 22 uh, is maybe the least powerful cartridge that you can uh, have a gun chambered in. There, I, I know there are 17, but I think that that's actually more powerful, frankly. But the point is is that, you know, it's not a self-defense round is kind of how it's characterized. It doesn't mean you want to get shot with it. Or how do I word this? If you had to get shot, and I, I mean that literally, if you had to get shot, but you had a choice with what bullet you got shot with or what cartridge you got shot with, you'd probably, you would pick a 22, but you still don't want to get shot. I mean, it's still a gun. You still have to, t- you still have to take it very seriously. But, uh, you know, as someone who's not into guns generally, um, that just seemed like a a reasonable thing for me to get because it qualified as a firearm, but it wasn't, uh, you know, like, I think like 50 cal is like the biggest that you can buy. And, you know, if you want to look up videos on YouTube or online of people shooting 50 50 caliber revolvers or something, that's literally hand cannons. And uh, when you enter that territory, you really start to enter the firearm as phallus sort of realm of, uh, of gun culture. And so uh, what I do is I actually don't go shooting a lot. I mean, one of the things that I sort of announced that I was sort of working on or working toward a couple years ago was the sort of, I don't even know how to word it anymore, but the NRA marksmanship sort of tiers for, for, for a pistol. And um, that's really the reason that I, that I wanted to buy a firearm and get into it at all was the idea of like marksmanship was kind of interesting to me. And really you know, some firearms as an object of aesthetic beauty. And I know that's like a very kind of uh, breathy kind of, uh, I don't know. It sounds like, I don't know. It sounds like a kind of whatever way to talk about what are effectively guns. But if you start to look around, especially like older firearms for me, I think are actually very interesting, very, uh, very beautiful. And um, as I started to look into it, it's just bizarre to see yourself like cultivating a taste or having a preference for certain firearms over others. And um, especially when I was getting into it, it was kind of around a time, this is around the time of the pandemic, where there was a lot of panic buying, so-called panic buying of firearms and stuff. And most of the stuff, when you look online on YouTube or other places, the sort of vein of gun culture that you encounter is a lot of like tactical, a lot of like Glock and like assault rifle and just, you know, it, it, it kind of that, sort. it's sort of, um, how do I word it? It's sort of tangential to the kind of alpha male um, uh, energy that you find online a lot. And, um, and I think the reason I'm bringing this up is because I decided, you know, I was sort of thinking I'm graduating. Is there something I can get myself? Um, yeah, just, is there something that I could buy myself that would be a way to kind of, I don't know, commemorate the moment or something like that. And what I really had in mind to buy was, um, one of two different types of rifles after kind of doing research. One is a Marlin 39A, which is a 22 caliber rifle, um, which I think it were made as early as like the 1930s, but they, you know, they were made very consistently throughout the 1900s. And it's a very modest type of um, uh, rifle. It's in 22 caliber, just like the the revolver that I have. And, uh, you know, but I happen to think that they're um, aesthetically pretty and they're, they're pretty well regarded. Um, the other one is a Winchester 9422, but more specifically, and this is where it starts to sound insane, but the version of the Winchester 9422 that I wanted was the Boy Scout Commemorative Edition. Now, 
I've never been a Boy Scout, but what I did find appealing about the firearm is one, it was beautiful. It's this sort of silver um, engraved, very kind of, I don't, I don't want to call it campy because it's like, well, that's actually, maybe there's a pun in there somewhere with the Boy Scouts of America. But it's a little kind of weird slice of Americana where you look at this firearm and the engravings on it are all Boy Scout oriented and it has like the Boy Scout motto kind of wrapped around it. And I don't know why that firearm speaks to me. I was never a Boy Scout. I think I was like an aborted Cub Scout, which is like, I think me and my brother were Cub Scouts for like one session. I remember kind of being in some dude's basement with like a couple of other kids. And I, I do kind of remember being in this assembly hall where there was some type of Cub Scout slash Boy Scout event taking place. But I have no affinity for the Boy Scouts. And I know it sounds especially weird considering they've been under fire recently. I know there was a whole like child molestation scandal. And I see, I think especially in, you know, our era of uh, identity politics and gender identity, I know they were brought under fire for their stance that, uh, I, th- I think if I remember correctly, they were pretty adamant that they were only going to accept, quote, biological males uh, into the Boy Scouts. And, um, but yeah, but there's something about this firearm, which to me looked like a, at least aesthetically was a lot more beautiful than the other kind of Winchester 9422s that you could get. And the fact that they were manufactured in 1985, which is the year that I happened to be born, just seemed like it, yeah, it worked out well. And so it actually sort of began the process, I mean, like looking on how to purchase firearms online, because when you start getting that specific, you know, not just, you know, your, your average, you know, Glock or, you know, new types of firearms that you can buy in most gun stores, you know, unless you sort of win the lottery and walk into a place and they happen to have this, you know, exceptionally rare firearm, you're just not going to find it. So it got me kind of looking into where do people buy firearms online and what does that process process look like, especially for someone who lives in California. And let me tell you, it's a fucking colossal pain in the ass. Now, uh, it, the point is being in California, it's a colossal pain in the ass. But here's where I differ, which is that's fine for me. Um, California has a lot of restrictions on gun laws. And um, I think... Or I guess what I, you know, not that anyone ever says this to me, because I honestly don't tell anybody because I'm insecure about it. Um, but what I, uh, well, what I know about how people feel about firearms, especially here in California, is the idea is that if you're into guns at all, or if you own a firearm, there's just, you know, they're going to, they assume a thousand things about you. But I will say this, and maybe this is just me kind of being a contrarian. But since purchasing a firearm, since uh, at least a couple years ago, going to the range semi-regularly and hoping to return again, the thing that I find absolutely mind-blowing is that every single time I've been in the proximity of other people who like own firearms, which has been at the gun range or at the firearm store, every single conversation that I hear or am invited to engage in is about California's crazy gun laws and the crazy liberals who are tr- who are trying to take their guns away. And I'm telling you, it takes me back to the time where I was like visiting all these different churches and religious organizations. And I mean, the, the example I always kind of go back to is when I was spending time with the Mormons. And I don't want to beat up on the Mormons. This is just a particularly illustrative or illustrative example of something that I see amongst all different types of ideologies. But when I was spending time with the Mormons, they would do this thing where every time they pass each other in the hallway, or every time is overstating it, but very frequently when they pass each other in the hallway or somebody gave some type of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not confession. Their testimony was the word that they used. People kind of testify to their faith or even conversationally people give examples of, you know, things that confirm their faith in God. It was either... You know, people would say this casually and also punctuate points with it, but they would just say, like, hey, the church is true. The church is true. And for an outsider, it's so blatantly, uh, you know, there's nothing malicious about it. And I I can't quite think of the word here for it, but it's so blatantly is a kind of re-scaffolding and an affirmation of of the group think, of the ideology and in a way, you know, again, not intentionally necessarily, but I think especially as it happens conversationally, maybe even amongst people who are kind of brushing up against your uh, community, it's a way to kind of vet like maybe outsiders, 
and their amenability to kind of the energy that you're bringing, right? Like maybe in the presence of somebody who is an out-group member, something like the church is true, if that kind of lands kind of weird, that just helps people kind of uh, triangulate what they can kind of be open or communicate about, right? So the point is, is that, uh, actually, I realize I'm kind of hopscotching through this whole story, and maybe it doesn't even fucking matter, but we have time to fill. So I'll just put it this way. So I decided I was going to buy one of these rifles, right? So I go through this process of trying to buy one online, and it is a fucking nightmare, the logistical stuff, you know, when you when you buy a firearm online, you have to have it, you can't have it sent to your house, obviously, it's not like Amazon, they're not going to prime you a pistol, um, but uh, you have to get it sent to a firearm store, and there's, of course, there's going to, they call it an FFL, there's going to be an FFL fee, and, um, you know, it's kind of funny, I mean, I think people who have never bought a firearm think that you can just kind of walk into a store and buy one, and that's true in some parts of the country. I mean, that, let's be clear about that. That you, I, My understanding is that you absolutely can do that in some parts of the country. But at least in California, you at least have to pass a written test, and you have to get a firearm safety certificate from that test, just like driving a car. When you purchase a firearm or ammunition, you ha- they, every time they do a background check, um, the paperwork involved is actually pretty extensive. There's all sorts of attestations about your mental health, and um, you know, have you been convicted of a crime, and you know, are you currently under a restraining order and all these types of things? And they do the background check. And you have to wait 10 days. From the day you purchase the firearm to the time you can come back and pick it up, you literally have to just wait 10 days. It's just a 10-day waiting period. You've paid for it. You've passed the background check. And then they just say, all right, wait 10 days. Which is kind of bizarre, because I think I think the idea is that if someone is buying a firearm in the heat of passion, that maybe 10 days gives them time to reflect or something like that. I don't know how that works, but it's it's just, I, I think the, the process is a little ass backwards because if you've already paid for it, you've kind of cemented somebody's interest in coming back and getting the firearm regardless of what they want to use it for, right? If the, if, the, if the real idea, like a tattoo, like that's what they should really use that for. They should do that for tattoos, which is like you go into the tattoo parlor, you pick what you want, uh, you sort of select it, you pay for it, and then you have to wait 10 days and see if you really want to get uh, that dagger through the heart that has mom uh, sort of uh, inscribed on a ribbon around it, that type of thing. Um, that's what it should really be used for. But the point is is that um, I tried to do something online. It, it didn't work out. It was just too convoluted, and it was a hassle, and so I said, fuck it. But what I really decided is at the end of the day, I actually don't go to the range that much. One, it's just expensive. You have to pay for the range time, and ammunition is not free. Now, thankfully... 75% of the reason I also chose a 22 is that that ammunition is usually widely available and very cheap. Um, so, you know, it's not breaking the bank. But at the end of the day, if your real interest in firearms is, you know, marksmanship, like a lot of things, 90% of your skill is not necessarily going to be developed in the act of doing something as much as it is in practicing. And for marksmanship and for shooting, the way you practice is dry firing. And, you know, many 22 calibers, you can't dry fire. Uh, um, what I happen to use in the revolver that I have is, it's not a drywall screw. I don't know what to call it. But it's this kind of, uh, I don't know, drywall anchor. These sort of plastic things that I think you drive into drywall. And, you know, um, because of them, now you can screw into the drywall or something like that. But if you get those of a certain diameter, you can actually stick those in the cylinder. And then the... Um, the firing pin can kind of land without damaging uh, the gun. So most firearms you can dry fire no problem. 22 caliber, on the other hand, because they're rim-fired ammunition, um, dry firing without a bullet or a cartridge, rather, in the cylinder can damage your firearm. Um, what I did was I located... There's actually a pistol that you can buy. It's called the Ruger SR-22, which is actually manufactured as a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol that you can actually dry fire without damaging the gun. So... That way, I said, you know what? Fuck this rifle shit. If I buy a rifle, it may be beautiful, it may be great, but if I don't go to the range ever, I'm just never going to use it. And since 99.9% of the handling that I do with any firearm that I would buy would be dry firing it in my home, just like practicing, pointing it at a target and shooting, then I should really get something that I can dry fire at home, something that I can actually use. And so for me, that was the Ruger SR22. So just yesterday, I drive like 40 minutes out of my house because I locate a store where, where they report that they have one. And when I walk in, 
I go there right when they open because I know that uh, usually these places have like a line out the door and that sort of stuff. So when I walk in, the first fucking thing that I hear is two dudes talking about how the police don't respond to things and the reason you need a firearm is in case somebody breaks into your home. You have to take action for yourself. And uh, and it was just like, it's just like the same record, like the church is true type of thing. It's just the same record playing over and over and over again. And if you watch videos on YouTube of like gun culture, it's just the same story over and over and over again. And uh, it's just absolutely bizarre. And then when it's my turn to go to the counter, I just sort of say, hey, that's the gun I want. And they say, okay. And uh, I handle it for a little bit, but uh, I essentially know that I'm going to get it anyway. It's a foregone conclusion. So I just say, all right, we start the paperwork. And as I'm doing it, this guy sort of asks me, he's like, uh, how long you lived in Berkeley or California? And I said, oh, I'm, you know, 16 years. And he's like, where are you from originally? I was like, Arizona. And he's like, oh, I lived in Colorado and I lived in uh, Portland or I lived in Oregon. And I said, oh, okay, well, there you go. And then unsolicited, he just offers, he's like, yeah, I should have bought all the guns I could get my hands on when I was living in Oregon. And I was like, oh, yeah, why is that? And he, again, he goes into this conversation about the restrictive gun laws and how in Oregon you can pretty much buy whatever you want. And and I'm just like, okay, well, that's great. And uh, But again, it's like the only basis of conversation is about the restrictive California gun laws. And, uh, you know, and, and I think baked into this, which I haven't really talked about, is this somehow this, this, this sort of fundamental belief that like what one needs out of a firearm is somehow outside the scope scope of the restrictions that California places on firearms. I mean, I don't pretend to be an expert, but as far as I know in California, you can get most of whatever you want as long as the capacity of the of the uh, of the magazine is like ten rounds or less. And the only exceptions they make to that are actually the types of firearms that I'm interested in, which is like lever action rifles and and actually there's this thing called CNR. I think it's collectible and relic or something like that. You know, if a gun's more than 50 years old, I think it just sort of gets sort of grandfathered in as a C&R, which is, you know, means it's essentially an antique. Now, because firearms are so well manufactured that actually a gun being 50 years old is still pretty new for the most part. These things will be, oper- as long as they're taken care of, they'll be operational for, you know, many hundreds of years, actually. Um, but uh, such are the laws. So again, this idea that like people are like amassing like a fucking arsenal is just uh, a little bit nuts. So yeah, what's the point of all this? Uh, yeah, one, certainly trying to fill time. <laughs> that's that's certainly something that's happening here. The other part was uh, maybe disclosing, and that feels like the right word, that um, yeah, I'm getting another firearm. And um, But yeah, also, yeah, this sort of, yeah, I think this is part of something I've been trying to think about with this like, you know, maybe, maybe as things get more more polarized in the culture, just trying to understand where I kind of fit in on the spectrum of stuff, because I think we're living in a time where you know, growing up, I was incredibly liberal, and uh, we didn't have the word social justice, or we certainly didn't use it a lot. But if you had asked me well, where my beliefs fell, I'd say they fell on the social justice end of the spectrum. And yet, I think many people are kind of looking up in this day and age and kind of feeling like, uh, you know, one, certainly the, the right has moved incredibly far right and the left has moved incredibly far left. And in comparison to those people, that somehow I actually find myself in the center, whereas before I would have considered myself like pretty far left. But just by virtue of the fact that the sort of spectrum has sort of uh, radiated out in both directions, that somehow... Well, one, by people on the right, when, or let me put it this way. When I'm standing in front of the people at the firearm store, I feel like I'm hiding the fact <laughs> that I'm a liberal. And yet, when I'm in the presence of people who are very far left, by virtue of the fact that they are more left than me, and I am just happen to be standing to the right of them politically, they consider me far right. And that's just a very bizarre place to be finding yourself in, I think, in this day and age, which is, it's almost like no matter where you fall, you're being looked at. Uh, at people as if you're they're, they're sort of, the incredulity that people have about your stance on things is uh, it's just very surprising I mean I don't want to go into this specifically because one I'm not you know uh, qualified to talk about it and I also just don't really want to because I'm kind of saturated with it but as I'm recording this obviously the conflict in, in Israel between Israel and Palestine is very acute and especially as someone who's on the Berkeley campus you know, and the uh, demonstrations and protests have increased. Um, it's just very bizarre to be in the middle of something where you have two sides 
at least the vocal, maybe it's majority, maybe it's minority, I don't know. But you have two very vocal subsets of people who are absolutely convinced of the truth value of their, their position and their conviction. I mean, in a way, I mean, an example of this is just sort of politics in general. But you would just hear anecdotally of like, uh, you know, families who were just completely rended by their political divisions as if people who otherwise love each other just couldn't sit down at a Thanksgiving dinner table without like yelling and screaming and like abusing each other with their political beliefs. You know, I don't share my father's political beliefs. Uh, I don't know that my mother really has political beliefs. But the idea that we would just like sit across a table and like yell at each other about them, it just seems like, why would you even put yourself in that position? Um, but especially with the Israel-Palestine conflict, I mean, the, the amount to which people are excoriating people on the other side of the aisle of their position is really extreme. And that's not really the point of it, because, of course, if you're convinced of either side, the way that it's been framed to me, of course you would excoriate the other side. On the one hand, if you're pro-Palestine, you know, you think Israel is Israel is this, uh, you know, colonial power that's been subjugating the Palestinian people for yada, yada, yada. And, um, you know, if you're pro-Israel, it's this idea that Hamas is a terrorist organization, and although they're um, uh, positioning themselves to use civilians as human shields, they um, are calling for the extermination of your people, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, I guess I'm not really sure how they would distill it for pro-Palestine, but at least for people who are, uh, how do I word this? Uh, or reverse that. I'm not really sure how they would, maybe anti-Zionist or something like that. Yeah, I'm not really sure how they would pray, uh, phrase it for people who are uh, pro, am I wording this correctly? I guess what I'm trying to say is, is basically if you're pro-Palestine, you're considered an anti-Semite. <laughs> and I, I don't know what they would call you if you're, um, if you're a, uh, pro-Israel, maybe a Zionist or something like that. Um, but it's just very weird to find yourself in a position where you feel like this is a very complicated issue, and um, I don't know that there's a really good place to fall in on either side. Meaning, you sort of hear both sides and you think, I don't know, I feel like most people are making pretty good points to both sides, and so, yeah, maybe I just feel indecisive, or I feel like I'm in this gray area. And... I think the difficult part about that is I think, I think, I think there is a silent majority of people who fall into that. And yet by virtue of the fact that we live in a society that you have these two vocal minorities, you just feel like you're a complete outsider. And worse than that, even though your skepticism or your doubts or the questions that you still have, maybe this is a better way to frame it. I still feel like I have a lot of questions. But by virtue of the fact that I have them, like you feel like you can't even voice them because people will be so incredulous that you haven't solved that or that there's there's still some kind of looming doubt or skepticism or uh, amount of inquiry that you still have to do into the matter because they've already made up their mind, right? And they sort of frame it as if they've already done the research, they've already thought through the difficult issues. And... The worst part, though, is when you subject any side to scrutiny, it's just so overwhelmingly clear that most people's positions are not based in objective fact or research or even reality sometimes, it seems, for the most part. It's entirely predicated on their you know, their biases, what culture do they come from, um, and it's based in emotion. <clears throat> and I guess this is uh, maybe the episode where I do sound like an alt-right person talking about buying firearms and such, but the thing that the feed, and maybe it's by virtue of the fact of looking at firearms— um, one thing that the feed has, or the algorithm has shown me more of is Ben Shapiro. Now, Ben Shapiro, to me, just kind of seems like kind of a, a, a Weasley kind of dude. Um, I mean, he has the type of kind of, um, I don't know if smug is the word for it, but basically he has kind of a self-righteous certitude that I, I usually find pretty off-putting. And yet, I watched two videos recently. Um, actually, I watched three videos one is, I, and this is the one where it's sort of, uh, well, I'll, I'll sort of finish with that one if I remember to come by. But the point is Ben Shapiro. I watched two videos where he uh, addresses, um, how do you say it, like speak, like uh, people who have questions, questions from the audience, rather, at two universities uh, in England, at Oxford, and I can't remember what the other one was. Um, but he's sort of fielding questions from the audience, and they sort of take turns sort of walking up to the podium and asking some type of challenging question, which he responds to. 
Now, I know that there are some people who are just very well schooled in, I don't know what you call it, like dis, a dismantling type of debate, where really the, 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 their capacity to win a debate really has nothing to do with the truth value or the reasonableness of what they're saying. They just have the rhetorical skills to kind of dismantle the people that they're talking to. But obviously, or maybe not obviously, Ben Shapiro is pro-Israel. And when I'm hearing people who are pro-Palestine sort of face him in conversation, it just seems to be observably true from someone who feels like they have no horse in the race and doesn't really have any bias in the matter, that the people who oppose Ben Shapiro are almost, are pretty uniformly incoherent. And there's something about Ben Shapiro, whether you like him or not. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is as I'm watching these videos, I'm primed to believe that I hate this guy. And yet there's something about his preparedness and his ability to sort of reasonably and cogently outline his position um, that I think is pretty convincing for someone who doesn't know anything about the matter. You know, if this was an issue that I was booked up on or I knew a lot more about, you know, maybe in my own moments uh, I would be able to dismantle his arguments. Um, but I will say this. There's something about... There's something about... How do I wear this? So years ago, <laughs> I served on a jury, and that's a long story. I tried to tell this story one time, and I was really just, I, I don't know, I wasn't really pleased with how it came out. Maybe in the future, I'll try recounting that experience again, because it was very formative and important for me. And yet, I'm not sure that I've ever really been able to communicate what was uh, meaningful about it for me. But I do remember at the end of my time serving on the jury, and I threw a weird circumstance I, I was not elected initially elected the four person but eventually had to serve as the four person of the jury I received a, a letter from the judge in the case and I think we all got letters it's not like there's anything special about me um, but I think it was this judge's way of sort of acknowledging that people who serve on the jury are give a lot of their time and I think in this case in particular I think the judge made a point of just you know sending a thoughtful letter to people knowing that they had been asked to weigh in on a particularly mm, sensitive and kind of difficult case but the thing that the judge noted, you know, because some of it was generic, but it sort of ended with this acknowledgement. At, at, some, at some point during the um, voir dire, which is the jury selection process, they sort of, you know, the defense and the prosecution take turns kind of asking, um, you know, trying to, trying to sort of poke and prod and, and sort of understand where you stand on some of the important issues that they're going to try to bring to the case. I don't know what the question was. Maybe it was, you know, what, what, what to you would be a convincing, what do you look for in somebody who's giving a testimony or um, ironically talking about testimony when we were talking about the Mormons earlier, but when, when there's an earnest testimony, like what do you look for or something? And I, the phrase that I use, and I don't remember what I said exactly, was emotional honesty. And I think what I meant by that is something that, whether it's just in my life in general or even as a crisis counselor, um, but I'm also going to, eventually I'm going to be applying it to this kind of political debate as well, is there's a certain tenor in people when they talk about even the most sensitive issues that can be very convincing. And it doesn't mean that they're right or wrong, but the thing that is the most persuasive to me or the thing that I find most endearing about people who take any type of position is the emotional honesty that they communicate it with. Because there are people, political debaters, who to me just look coached up. You know, they really are invested. They have no investment in the truth value of what they're talking about. They're really only interested in winning the debate. Um... You know, I feel like Bill O'Reilly is is that type of a person. Uh, um, uh, Tucker Carlson is kind of that type of a person. Rush Limbaugh or uh, these other sort of uh, pundit personalities are that. Trump is that type of person. It has nothing to do with the truth value. They just need to win the debate or something like that. And in some ways, what they're actually doing is they're trying to get a rise out of people. Now, I'm sure Ben Shapiro, uh, ben Shapiro is a... a um, is it sensationalist? What's the word? An instigator in some way as well. I'm sure he says things to rile people up because they'll get attention. But at least as these two videos are concerned, as he was speaking, I believe that he believes everything that he's saying. And there was just something kind of surprising too. I mean, I don't want to sort of generalize this to young people in general, but it was just very meaningful to me. It, it, very interesting that in these debates, Ben Shapiro would just kind of sit there, or uh, stand there, rather, very calmly, with no notes, and meet whatever questions he was asked, and in every single instance, offer a very thoughtful and thorough um, response to them. And yet the young people who kind of came up to the podium each had their cell phone in their hand, 
would usually read from it some type of prepared statement. And, you know, I, I don't want to say that this sort of invalidates any point that they make, because, of course, Ben Shapiro is a public speaker. He's used to this. Part of, part of this is and there's an element, there's a performance element to this as well, and he's just more rehearsed. But there was just something about every single person who opposed him, their compl- their, really a, a complete inability to meet, you know, I don't know if it's unpreparedness, maybe they're sort of overwhelmed by the sensory overload of the moment or whatever, but but they're just really unable to meet any of his uh, responses. Um, that was just interesting for me. And I think I'm talking about this because, you know, uh, maybe the third thing I was going to mention is I did watch a third video, which included somebody who was a very formative and meaningful sort of personality for me from my past, which is I watched a conversation also about Israel and Palestine between Sam Harris and Eric Weinstein. Now, Eric Weinstein, I don't know that much about. But this conversation, again, reminded me about Sam Harris, who for me was a very formative um, uh, influence in my early years. Now, this is the part of the story where you start to sound like that dude who, when he's talking about music, is like, oh, yeah, I like Blink-182, but I like their early shit before they sold out, like that type of person. But it just happens to be the case that there is a constellation of thinkers who came to be associated with this sort of so-called intellectual dark web that by the time people kind of got turned on to them, by the time that those people got podcasts, I had kind of been saturated with them. I'd kind of, well, I'd read their books. I'd kind of heard every argument that they had to make. And I was sort of just in a different chapter of my life. And one of those people, and I, I, well, yeah, I'll just say one of those people was Sam Harris. And Sam Harris is one of these people who... I would say, like Ben Shapiro, every time he speaks, he's able to seemingly almost extemporaneously offer an incredibly um, cogent and uh, 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 thorough and thoughtful response. And whether or not you agree with him, the fact that you you just believe every time he speaks that he believes everything that he's saying. And I think the point that I'm trying to get back to is it's very weird to be an adult, and especially adult white male in this world now, who one considers themselves to be very liberal, to also navigate their own dispositions and thoughts and skepticism and preferences in a world where it feels like we're being asked to really pick a side in most cases. And it's just weird to feel, one, one to see yourself... And again, I consider myself to be a pretty thoughtful, intelligent person to really find themselves in the middle on most issues that people are talking about and yet being told very passionately, very vehemently by people on both sides of the issue that that sort of, um, that there's something tepid about that stance and that it's, it's, it's indicative of some kind of moral and personal failing on your part that that's where you fall on the issue. And that's from both sides, Right. If I'm in the gun shop and I express how I really feel about the issue, I'm a libtard and um, I'm inculcated into the cult of the California people who want to take our guns away, right? Or if I'm on the UC Berkeley campus and there's like a pro-Palestine protest and I raise my hand and go, I'm actually not so shh. This actually seems kind of weird. Like, I'm not really sure that I'm on board with what you people are defending. Then I'm some fascist, uh, Zionist. Uh, colonialist, uh, like, you know, the sort of decolonizing, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just sort of prototypical kind of white male who's uninformed on the issue, uh, insensitive to the plight of the Palestinian people and this type of stuff. So I don't know what the solution is. Um, but, um, yeah, maybe as someone who, uh, elects to kind of record their voice into a microphone for an hour every week and share their thoughts with people, even in this moment, as I'm talking about this, there's a part of me that's like, do you really want to talk about this stuff? Um, you know, it just feels very strange because uh, I just have to believe, um, again, and it's, I, it's, in, it's all entirely predicated on one's self-assessment, right? If you assess yourself to be reasonable, to be relatively thoughtful, and to honestly not be guided by the types of prejudices that, I, that at least seem to me to inform most of people's, like, entrenched entrenched positions on these issues um you know it's just a weird time to be living but this is something that actually uh, does come up in therapy all the time i mean you know um 
it's sort of funny because in my head when I talk about this stuff, I, I feel like there's a certain, maybe there's a certain type of arrogance. Or it sounds like I'm being arrogant or something like that. And I sort of, I wish people would sort of look into my therapy and realize that I've spent most of the last 16 years like try, trying to just like trust my judgment about stuff. Um, but the one thing I always come back to in therapy is like, how can I ever be certain about my position on stuff when on all sides of every issue, I see people who to me, in my very personal experience, seem to be utterly convinced of something that's empirically, observably uh, refutable and like clearly not true. You know, like when I spend time with the Mormons and they're just going, the church is true, the church is true, the church is true. And I know, as someone who's just in a cursory look into the history of their religion, that there is a a ton of stuff that they choose not to look at or keep themselves ignorant of, which if they absorbed into their worldview might maybe if not disabuse them of their faith entirely, would certainly change how they engage with it or the story that they told about it or their conception of it. Um, that's kind of how I feel with most things. You know, if I'm standing in front of the people at the firearms store and I feel like, okay, well, I want to own this, I want to own these things too, but there's something about their position on it which is so clearly, you know, this this overture about the need for self-defense or this overture about the government trying to take guns away or something like that is so clearly rooted in their desire to just like shoot things right to own guns as objects of destruction you know and i don't i don't want to completely invalidate that like there's maybe for some people there is something cool about going to the range and you know pressing a trigger on something that goes bang and it's kind of dangerous but it's also kind of contained and if you learn how to, I don't know, train yourself to use it right, then, you know, you have skill with this otherwise feared and scary object. But at the end of the day, I know a lot of people are kind of, you know, whether it's the concealed carry people or, you know, these kind of preppers. Like you look on YouTube, you see these people who just like go to the range and they practice all the tactical stuff and they tell people how to like stockpile ammunition and firearms and armor and uh, how to prepare for the apocalypse and that sort of stuff. And they, they have all these scenarios just kind of floating around, sort of doomsday scenarios floating around in their minds that they think, you know, this is the means by which they will survive. Like if this is the movie, if this were the movie starting in Medius Rex, uh, post-apocalypse, like they, these would be the people rounding up people and eating them as cannibals, right? Um, where am I going with all this? Yeah, I don't know. It's just weird to be in a position where, I, you know, I mean, I have to admit part of it is there's no club that I want to be a part of, but also feeling like there's no club that I do belong to. And um, yeah, maybe there's just something about, you know, our current. Yeah. I mean, the issue of the day, or at least these last couple of days or these last couple of weeks, and we'll probably be this way for a while, is the Israel-Palestine thing and just feeling very uh, ambivalent about most of it. And um, at least my sense is that I think, you know, I hear a lot of people kind of chalking up, chalking that up to a moral failure, and um, yeah, I guess I'm not really sure what that makes me. Yeah, I don't know why it's popping into my mind right now. Maybe it's because I'm thinking about war, and I don't know. Maybe I'm also thinking about Armageddon, or you know you know, just something about, you know, there's a reality to this world there, you know, maybe, maybe I'm thinking about the doomsday preppers or whatever, these sort of nightmare scenarios that it's very easy for me to sit here and say don't happen to people. And yet, um, I mean, I guess I heard anecdotally, I don't know if it's true, but when Russia was invading Ukraine, basically the Ukraine government was giving firearms to the civilians so that they had a means to defend themselves. And that's, that's the type of thing that you would hear maybe um, someone who was a defender of the Second Amendment saying. Like, yeah, it's very easy to sit here and say, oh, yeah, there's an, I don't need to defend myself from an intruder or my own government or an invading force. But, I mean, maybe that's not guaranteed, you know? Uh, objectively, is it the craziest thing in the world to want to be prepared for something like that? I, my, my point is I'm not taking a stance on the issue. But I guess I'm just talking about these sort of insane situations that one thinks will never happen to them until, of course, it does. And the reason that's coming to mind is I started watching this movie called The Impossible, and it's available now on Netflix, and it's by a director I'd never heard of, but, uh, and I know, I think it came out around like 2013 or 12 or 11 or something like that, and basically it's a film, film, 
telling of the story of one family who experienced, um, I think the tsunami was throughout Southeast Asia, but in, I believe they're in Thailand, in, I think it was like 2003 or four. there was just a major tsunami. And I don't think the movie was seen widely when it came out, and I don't think it has very good reviews, but the only, I had seen uh, at least a clip of the uh, tsunami kind of landing uh, in sort of near the beginning of the film, when the, the tsunami first kind of comes in and starts washing this hotel away that this family is staying at. And I had seen that clip many years ago, and it always kind of stuck in my mind. So as I'm kind of looking at Netflix, looking for something to watch, and I see this, I say, oh, wow, well, this is kind of a cool opportunity to watch that movie that's kind of been in the back of my mind somewhere. And I start to watch it, and it is so fucking unsettling. I just couldn't even finish it. I have it paused in a minimized window on my computer for like the last like two, three days. But what it does, and the reason that it's good, you know, there's like kind of like a, I don't know, is it horror porn or gore porn, gore porn or something like, the, you know, the, the Saw movies, all this sort of stuff. As I get older, I can't watch that stuff because it's just masochistic and like disturbing, you know? I'm sure we've talked about that. As you get older, as your own mortality becomes more apparent and real to you, you know, you can't watch things that you used to watch as a kid because when you're a kid, you, I don't know, you, you watch whether it's uh, kids getting killed in Friday the 13th or whatever it is, and that's just kind of like fantasy, right? When we're young, we're sort of, you know, whether we realize it or not, we kind of think that we're immortal. But as you get older, that stuff is, is very, very disturbing. And also, maybe as you just sort of attune to the realities of what's actually going on in the world, it seems almost a irreverent is the word that I'm thinking of. There's something irreverent about the gratuitous violence that we see in entertainment and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the thing that this movie does so well, at least as I was watching it, is the way in when this tsunami hits, the way it conveys the completely um, indiscriminate destruction that it raises. And... Of course, there's always something selective about movies in that it has to focus on the story of, of one people. So, you know, movies can't really communicate this. But I think there's this idea, too, that we kind of, and it part, it's, it's through movies and these types of things where when catastrophe strikes, like, we're going to be the person who survives, you know, like, because every, you know, whether it's, uh, like, I was watching some of the Mission Impossible movies recently, and it's like, every time the hero falls from a building, he's able at the last minute to, like, just reach out for a rock on the cliff wall and just hang there with this impossible amount of upper body strength, that the truth is, is that if you're falling at that speed, it doesn't matter what you try to grab on for. Even if you were to get purchase on a rock, your arm would be ripped out of its socket with the gravitational force pulling you as you plummet toward the earth. Um... But yeah, I don't know. I think sometimes we, we, yeah, we, you know, the way these things are portrayed in movies, we're just, you know, I don't know. We, we think we're going to be the ones who survive or whatever. And the way the movie portrays this tsunami coming in and just how it realistically shows if you, along with every single uh, thing that isn't nailed down, is getting washed away in a huge tidal wave, the amount of debris and like dangerous shit that you're swimming, that you're just kind of being you know, I don't know, like, I'm thinking of, like, a rock tumbler, like, the fact that you survive that at all would be a goddamn miracle, and there's, like, this scene where, like, Naomi Watts, is it Naomi Watts? Yeah, the actress who's kind of, like, in this tumult, like, getting sort of swept away by this water, and she's, like, banging into, like, tree limbs that are, like, puncturing her ribs, and just, you know, metal and stuff that's, I mean, it's just absolutely terrible to watch, and, um, Yes, and when she finally surfaces and happens to find one of her children, I, yeah, I don't want to spoil it for you, but I mean, I'm only like 25 minutes into the movie, but it's horrible, and it's very hard to watch, and it's very emotional too. I find like as I get older too, um, you know, I, I it's hard, I don't want to say I get choked up at movies because although I kind of tear up, it's not the same thing as like being younger and the kind of emotional catharsis that a movie would sometimes build to. Um, this is getting very dark very quickly. But again, I think as you get older, there's something about like the kind of general acknowledgement of the potential misery and destruction or something in the world that like, you know, I'm kind of watching this movie and, you know, I'm seeing its very vivid depiction of like natural disaster and also like the inevitable one near insurmountability of that. 
I mean, there's this there's this horrible moment in the movie as the tidal wave's coming in where you have one of the young sons who's kind of fighting for his fucking life in this torrent of water. And in a moment of brief respite, there's like a car that's like floating by. And, the, the, you know, they don't make a big deal of it in the movie. This is why it's actually, I mean, I'm talking about it as if it's unwatchable, but when I, I'm really trying to say that it's actually very intelligently done and it's a very good filmmaking. They don't make a huge deal of it, but there's this car that kind of floats by that he attunes to very briefly and he hears this uh, baby crying in the back of the car. And just before a kind of second tidal wave kind of comes and submerges the car. And of course, it's a very evocative depiction of like the inevitable destruction that's wrought by something like this that you probably wouldn't think about, you know? And um, yeah, I don't know, maybe just seeing like a very kind of genuine depiction of that stuff feels very kind of consciousness raising. Anyway, well... I don't know why we really ended up where we ended up with this one. But uh, so be it. You know, like I always say, you show up and there's things you want to talk about. And uh, you think that's going to be what you get to. And then lo and behold, you spend an hour talking about um, firearms and Ben Shapiro and this movie that you don't particularly enjoy, but you're talking about the merits of. And so... You know, I don't know. I don't know what to call this. I feel like the, this is a installation where I'm kind of, I don't know, maybe looking at parts of myself that are certainly present, things that I certainly think and feel, and uh, and probably consume, or I probably think about a fair amount of the time, but I don't. Uh, I don't usually feel comfortable talking about. And why we're getting to that today, I don't know. Maybe it's the exhaustion talking. Maybe there's something in exhaustion too where. Like, I used to have this thing where, you know, there's this thing they talk about in performance called stage health, which is like when you're sick and you feel like, oh, I can't do it, I can't get through it, you're always, it just seems to be observably true that you will feel fine for the duration that you're on stage, and then you'll go back to being sick. But I remember when I was taking voice lessons as a kid, too, I remember showing up one day and, and, you know, um, just kind of being under the weather. And I remember as I was doing my kind of normal vocal warm-ups or singing something, my voice teacher was like, wow, you actually sound really good today. And the way they sort of identified it was there was something about being sick, you know, my my whatever laissez-faire kind of blah attitude I brought to this that actually made it effortless. I wasn't actually trying. I was just kind of surrendering to the process. And by virtue of not trying as hard, I was actually doing quite a bit better. Now, I'm not saying that this is better, right? Like this just feels very uncomfortable. But what I am suggesting is my exhaustion and the pressure of my thesis and the looming finals I'm about to enter have somehow let my guard down. And then whether it's uh, uh, a poor choice or not, for whatever reason, I have felt comfortable. I feel like this is a safe space to share the parts and thoughts of myself that I don't usually feel comfortable sharing with other people. And I may certainly live to regret that. But um, that's kind of what this is for, I suppose, right? Like, I think I think the last installment that we did here was fine, certainly serviceable, but I think it was the one before that where I really kind of almost went off the rails and uh, almost gave up, you know? And those are the moments where, you know, I'm kind of sitting here thinking, well, this isn't going the way that I hoped. And... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Bringing those kind of preconceived notions into things usually does more harm than good. So I guess I'm trying. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is uh, the point I really try to take away from all this is, it's not about what we talk about. It's that we talk, and uh, really the the benchmark of success is that this thing gets done. And uh, again, there's this kind of a faith on my part that if I think and feel it, and I'm you know, a pretty reasonable person that other people might as well. So, you know, if you hear what I talk about today and you think I'm a monster, you're certainly entitled to that. Um, and that's no matter where you fall on these issues. Or if you hear this and you th- you, you, know, you hear a little bit of yourself too, then uh, I'm not pretending I have any answers for you, but maybe there's some validation in that too. And we can keep kind of scratching this lottery ticket of life and see what's underneath it all and see if we can't uh, learn something together, shall we? So let's put a pin in it. Let's leave it there. 
and um, I will get back to working on... Actually, you know what? I'm done for the day. I was going to say I'll get back to working on my thesis, but I won't. I'll take a shao shao. Maybe I'll dive back into this movie, The Impossible, and see if I can make any more progress on it. But uh, otherwise, um, I'll sort of return to my life, and you'll return to yours, and we'll meet up again next time. So thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And ciao for now.